Amen. You know, it is truly amazing what you can accomplish when you have time on your hands and nowhere to go. And during the pandemic, I went back and rewatched all the movies in the Marvel Universe with my daughter Lucy. In case you're wondering, that's 23 films from Iron Man to Avengers Endgame and a few television shows as well. The fascinating part of it, though, was it was like rereading a book. Watching these movies again at a new point in my life allowed me to see things that I had missed the first time and to let old themes take on a whole new meaning. For instance, the phenomenon of the blip has taken on a new light for me in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. The blip is a massive world-altering event where the evil Marvel villain Thanos steals all the Infinity Stones, then exterminates half of all life in the universe, but then the Avengers go back in time to resurrect the victims and bring them all back to life in a blip. There's only one problem. A five-year gap occurred between the extermination and the resurrection, which results in significant problems, as you can imagine. As a student puts it in the movie Spider-Man Homecoming, over five years ago, half of all life in the universe was wiped from existence, but then, eight months ago, a band of brave heroes brought us back. They called it the blip. Those of us who blipped away came back the exact same age, but our classmates who didn't blip grew five years older. Now, can you imagine how alarming it would be if half the world was extinguished and then suddenly, five years later, people returned at the exact same age they were before, even though the rest of us and the population had gone on without them for five years. Younger brothers would be older brothers. Younger sisters would be older sisters. The shock and trauma of that would be immense. And it was hard for me when I watched it the first time to imagine something so disorienting. That was until I tried to walk back into the world this month at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like the blip, the pandemic was a world-altering event that affected all of humanity. We lost many to COVID-19 who will never return. And though we did not lose five years of our lives, who and what we lost feels just as significant. While the pandemic is still raging around the world, the easing of restrictions here in the U.S. makes it feel like our own blip has happened. An article in the Post yesterday described the celebratory return to bars and restaurants, ball games and concerts this week like the end of prohibition. Suddenly, people and places and things that were not a part of our lives for the last 14 months have returned. And many are acting like we can go back to the way it was before. Don't we all just want to go back like it was just a blip? However, while that might be physically possible. For a lot of us, it will not be emotionally possible. Like the pandemic, the blip had a profound emotional impact on everyone in the Marvel Universe, even the superheroes. And now Marvel's chief executive officer, Kevin Feig, is saying that the upcoming slate of movies they're creating will tackle the emotional aftermath of the global pandemic through the lens of the blip. They say art imitates life. 
So it's no surprise that Marvel is preparing to deal with the emotional aftermath of COVID-19. But are we? Have we reckoned with the unprecedented rise in mental illness and substance abuse that occurred during the pandemic? There was a fourfold increase in people who reported symptoms of anxiety and depression, which only counts those reported. It was likely much higher. At least two out of every five people, nearly half of all Americans, experienced negative impacts on their mental health, such as difficulty sleeping and eating, increases in alcohol consumption and drug use, as well as worsening chronic conditions due to the increase in stress and anxiety. The mental health impact of the pandemic has been particularly heavy for older, isolated adults, vulnerable individuals, young people, women with children, and it disproportionately affected people of color and essential workers. Research about previous pandemics like SARS and Ebola tell us that many people will experience agoraphobia following this long period of social isolation, which is anxiety about leaving one's home, entering into crowded spaces again, or being in places where escape is difficult. We all hoped that if we, if we just got vaccinated, we could go back to normal. But the mental health impact of the pandemic will have a lasting effect for many years to come. And it poses a new challenge for society and for the church. People are in pain. And this summer, as we slip and blip back into the world, public health experts are cautioning us to brace for a whole new crisis, a major psychological fallout, a national mental health epidemic. More than ever, it is crucial for us to remember that everyone we meet is fighting a battle we know nothing about. I heard somebody say, be kind because everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. In fact, this week we learned even the highest paid female athlete in America, our own superheroes, are not immune to mental health crisis. In her statement about withdrawing from the French Open, the number one ranked tennis player in the world, Naomi Osaka, bravely shared she'd been suffering with long bouts of depression, huge waves of anxiety. Her announcement came fittingly at the end of National Mental Health Awareness Month and helped break the silence and the stigma around mental illness. By sharing her story, Osaka did humanity a great service. She gave us all permission to share our struggles, knowing it's okay not to be okay. And if we're honest, most of us are not okay. And many times, the most courageous and heroic thing that we can do is share our struggles, and the burdens we carry will become lighter and so that others will know that they are not alone. Naomi Osaka's witness asks us this profound question. Are we brave enough to share our pain? Isn't that what family is for? Isn't that what friends are for? Isn't that what church is for? Church was not meant to be 
the happiest place in town, but it is supposed to be the most honest. So how are we to honestly read this story about Jesus and his family and the scribes while living at the advent of a mental health crisis? After preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and sending out his disciples with the authority to do the same, Jesus went home where great crowds gathered again to meet him there. Yet people were saying something that they had not said yet at this point in Jesus' life and ministry. They were saying that he had gone out of his mind and his family believed them. So his family went out to seize Jesus, it says in Greek, to restrain him to detain him. His own family tried to take hold of Jesus and tie him down and chain him up like the people did to the Gerasene demoniac. And you thought your relatives were bad. There's no way around it. This was the first century version of a family intervention. Unfortunately, though, we don't, we don't get an immediate reaction from Jesus. The narrative turns sharply from the familial to the political as special investigators from the capital come down to accuse Jesus of being possessed by the ruler of the demons. Mark is trying to show us here that Jesus' family and the state were now collaborating together to neutralize him and maintain the status quo. You know, I'm sure Jesus' mission and message brought a lot of unwarranted attention on his family. Many likely blamed them for the way Jesus turned out or treated them as if they were guilty by association. At a certain point, it's pretty clear Jesus' family had enough of him and started saying that he'd gone insane. The scribes immediately capitalized on the family's conflict and added their own indictment that Jesus was possessed by the devil. This double charge of insanity and possession would have been enough to ruin the life of anyone in first century Judea. Of course, Jesus was neither insane nor possessed in this story. And yet even though this moment, this text offers a profound critique of both the family and the scribes, many Christians have connected mental illness, and demonic possession in our theology for thousands and thousands of years. And I'm not just talking about evangelicals or fundamentalists here. Liberals and progressives are notorious for explaining away the stories of demonic possession by interpreting them through the lens of mental health. We think we're doing a favor to people in the stories, but this practice does not humanize those possessed by demons. It merely demonizes the mentally ill. Mark 3 is a cautionary tale that offers us a picture of the way that families and churches and societies marginalize and demonize people and movements that they don't understand or don't want to understand. If Jesus were alive today, We'd call him insane and possessed all over again. But he'd also be called all the names that we use today to marginalize and to demonize people like terrorist or foreigner, communist or Marxist, socialist, anti-American or radical. There's a famous line from 
Kurt Vonnegut's book of short stories, Welcome to the Monkey House, it's one that was often quoted by Mr. Spock on Star Trek. In an insane world, a sane person must appear insane. In an insane world, a sane person must appear insane. Like Ken Kesey's play, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jesus challenges the assumptions we often make about who's sane and who's insane. Is it the patients or the doctors? Is it Bromden or Nurse Ratchet? Is it Jesus or his family? Is it Jesus or the scribes from Jerusalem? Is it Jesus or his society? Is it Jesus or our world? Jesus turned everything upside down and upended the conventional wisdom about sanity and demonic possession. We often forget the concept of what is sane and insane is socially determined and historically contingent. Our definition of insanity has changed and evolved over time. And what's more disturbing is that just like it was with Jesus in this time, charges of mental illness are often employed as a way to control people, not to find a pathway for healing. We lived in a society where women who didn't conform to the conventional ideal of femininity could be declared hysterical and committed. As we approach Pride Month, I'm reminded we lived in a society where the American Psychiatric Association considered homosexuality a mental illness until 1973. And even though we've amended these horrifying practices, there are political leaders today who continue to apply this dehumanizing ideology of insanity to transgender and non-binary people. What's really insane? Having an identity that does not conform to social norms or trying to control and oppress people who are different? I want to be clear. I'm not saying any of this to downplay the reality of mental illness or the urgent need for families to care for loved ones who are suffering. As you know, I'm an ardent believer in science, psychiatry, psychology, medicine, therapy, treatment, government funding for mental health services, we need to stop cutting these services. Why do we think we have a problem and a crisis? We need to stop criminalizing mental health. We need to stop incarcerating and executing the mentally ill. Personally, I believe everyone needs therapy. But not because I believe everyone's insane. I believe that everyone needs therapy because our world has gone insane. America has gone insane. The world is making us all crazy. And we're all desperately in search of a way to find healing and wholeness from the traumatic experience of living in the 21st century. And so the question is, what can we do with our pain? Where do we go to find healing and wholeness in a world gone mad? Several years ago, the Dalai Lama was at a conference with Buddhist teachers from the West at one point, Sharon Salzberg brought up the subject of self-hatred and said that it was a major issue that had to be addressed by anybody who was teaching Buddhism in the West. However, interestingly, the Dalai Lama didn't know what she was talking about. 
So he started going around the room and asking all the other Western teachers about self-hatred, and every one of them agreed with Sharon Salzberg. But self-hatred was something the Dalai Lama literally couldn't understand. As it turns out, self-hatred is a uniquely Western problem. To turn on oneself inwardly in hatred is a particularly Western response to the pain and suffering of life, likely the result of toxic doctrines in the West of original sin and total depravity. Reflecting on this phenomenon, American Buddhist teacher Pima Chodron says that the first noble truth of the Buddha is that we are all going to experience a feeling of dissatisfaction and suffering in life, a feeling that something is wrong. That is the first noble truth. But the dissatisfaction we feel is the result of the fact that our society is out of tune with the true nature of the universe and the basic goodness of all living things. Only in the West, Chadron says, do we articulate this status, dissatisfaction with life as something is wrong with me. Imagining that we are the thing that is flawed instead of society is a particularly Western phenomenon. But it's not us, is it? And one of the best ways I've heard of putting this good news comes from musician Michael Kiwanuka who sings, You Ain't the Problem. You ain't the problem. Hear that good news today. You ain't the problem. The problem in Nazareth wasn't Jesus. It wasn't his mental health or his spiritual condition. The problem in Nazareth was a society that was fundamentally opposed to the work of healing and liberation. The crowds followed Jesus because he brought good news to the poor, healed the sick, lifted up the brokenhearted, released the captives, gave sight to the blind, set the oppressed free. He didn't come to control people or to lord power over people. He came to set them free. He came to tear down the kingdom of Satan that was oppressing people and infiltrate the strong man's house and plunder its property so it could be redistributed for the sake of building a more equitable society and a more beloved kingdom. I got a t-shirt a few years ago from a friend. It's my favorite t-shirt. It has Jesus' face on it and he's wearing a pirate hat. I know, it's strange. Jesus wearing a pirate hat, and it says over on the side, what would Jesus plunder? What would Jesus plunder? Good students of Mark 3 will know the answer is that Jesus has come to plunder the strong man's treasure and give it to the poor. But Jesus' family and the scribes from the capital were not interested in the healing and liberation of all people suffering in pain in their society. Maybe they were terrified of their own pain. Or maybe they were afraid of what they might lose if the world changed and everyone had access to healing and liberation. Whatever held them captive, they stood against God. They marginalized and demonized Jesus. They denied the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and they tragically sealed their own fate. As humans, we can't escape pain. But what we do with our pain determines everything. We can either face it and feel it, talk about it, heal it, and be liberated by it, or we can deny it, suppress it, run from it, project it on others, and ultimately be trapped by it. So often we think we should not feel pain, that pain is an aberration, 
In our society of quick fixes and instant gratification, we imagine we should never feel discomfort or loss or disappointment. If we are experiencing something unpleasant, we think it must mean we're doing something wrong or worse, that there's something wrong with us. But you ain't the problem. Pain is a part of the human experience. As Pema Chodron writes, the only way to ease our pain is to experience it fully, to turn toward it, to learn to stay with the uneasiness so the habitual chain reaction of pain and suffering doesn't rule our lives forever. Instead of asking ourselves, how can I find security and happiness? She says we should ask ourselves, can I touch the center of my pain? Can I sit with suffering? both your suffering and mine, without trying to make it go away? Can I stay present to the ache of loss and disgrace and disappointment in all its forms and let it open me to a new reality? Nothing in life is harder than turning toward our pain and taking responsibility for it. Most people will never do this in their entire lives. And honestly, I have to say, if you tell me that I have to face my pain on my own, I'll tell you it's hopeless because I know I can't do it by myself. But the good news that Jesus offers in this story is that we don't have to do it alone. That's what friends are for. That's what the church is for. Taking responsibility for our pain and working for healing and liberation is something we are called to do together in community, bearing each other's burdens. I don't know if you noticed, but at the beginning of this story, the crowds were outside the house and Jesus' family was inside. But at the end of the story, Jesus' family is on the outside of the house and the crowd is on the inside. And that reversal is where we find the good news of hope in this story. Hope is the possibility of a new family, a family that transcends kinship and biology, heredity and patriarchy, an upside-down family of people that we choose for ourselves to walk together with on a journey of faith. Hope is the possibility of a community where our deepest relationships are with those willing to face their pain and travel with us down a road toward healing and liberation not only for ourselves, but for the entire world. Hope is the possibility of an inclusive and loving body of people who sacrifice their time and resources and lives to welcome those whose society has called insane and possessed, to gather those who have been marginalized by their families or demonized by the religious authorities. This is the kind of family intervention that we need to face the emotional aftermath of the post-COVID blip together. This is the kind of community that we need to heal our pain and to find liberation. A people who never turn away from pain, who never turn away from suffering, but who always embrace each other while singing together. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are neighbors on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. We will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime of your fear. We will hold our hands out to you 
speak the peace you long to hear. We will weep when you are weeping. When you laugh, we'll laugh with you. We will share your joy and sorrow till we've seen our journey through. Amen.